hi there to all the listeners of Everybody is Talking About This, the true story of a rape case. I'm Lisa Lennox, and I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you all for tuning in. According to Buzzsprout statistics, this audiobook podcast has reached many corners of the globe, from Nebraska to Norfolk, and from Perth in Scotland to Perth in Australia. If you have any feedback for me, please don't hesitate to get in touch on email, everyone is talking about this at gmail.com, or via Twitter on at 63136 underscore survivors. Let me know what you like and anything you don't. And please help me spread the word. Recommend the podcast to your friends and family and your local communities. We need everyone to know how victims are suffering and how justice simply isn't being done in so very many cases. Finally, before this eighth episode, I must warn listeners, as always, that this audiobook covers themes of sexual assault and rape, eating disorders, anxiety and depression, and that there is occasional strong language. Over the next few days, as I travel to and from work, I go over and over the fiancé, Miss X's visit to our house. I test the matter on the person on the Clapham omnibus gauge. If I stopped an ordinary person in the street and asked them if they thought it was okay for a close associate of a person accused of committing a serious crime to come and seek out their victim for a chat, what would they say? I'm almost certain that absolutely everybody would maintain that no, it absolutely is not all right at all. On that basis, I email Luke Gallagher, making clear how unhappy I am that the matter has been dropped. At the very least, I say, we should surely try to find out who she was communicating with and whether she was taking instructions from Mr. Y. He replies, With regards to ongoing work with who the person is stroke was on the phone, this will not be progressed further because the offence of witness intimidation was not fully and legally met, and nor do I have the capability to pursue this, because as the offence was not made out, I would not have legal powers to seize her phone or to conduct communication intelligence data work on incoming stroke outgoing calls from those involved. There are very high data protection laws involved that must be adhered to for that kind of investigation, and they are not met. I'm utterly flabbergasted yet again. I can't accept it. I won't accept it. I email Luke Gallagher to ask how Miss X found our address. He responds, I cannot say for certain how or if your address is known to the defence stroke defendant. It would not have been said in court. It may or may not have been said by B, open brackets, as she cannot remember, close brackets. The female who was spoken to stated she did not know B's exact address, open brackets, but may well do now, close brackets, as she saw Iris come out of an address and has since been warned re her action stroke behaviour. The fiancé stated she knew the area of the incident and what direction B would have been walking from, stroke to, etc., due to legal disclosures given to the defence team and discussions with the defendant, and knew the name of the victim, stroke her description, also from this, and so searched the area for some time. She has been suitably advised with future conduct, and I will ensure his solicitors are advised also. I can't fathom it, can't make head nor tail of it. These are clearly lies. How could Miss X search the area for some time and then just by happy fortune end up right outside our front door? And anyway, she was right outside for some time, including for the duration of the conversation Phil and Spence were having. I believe Miss X has told a pack of lies that a child would be able to see through. I certainly can. Yet police officers have chosen to believe her rubbish. Why would they do this? 
Don't they want to protect the public? Protect us? Protect B? Moreover, what are the legal disclosures Luke refers to? And when Mr. Y was being asked for all this info by Miss X, didn't he wonder what she wanted it all for? What she was going to do with it? If I were on remand for a serious crime, I'd want to know if someone were planning to do something stupid with information I had given them. I simply don't believe Miss X acted alone. She did what she did, or Mr. Wise say so. I'm convinced. I'm also sure that she's speaking to him on the phone. Sure they were in collusion about this. Sure there is much, much more to it than she is letting on. But the police are clearly completely uninterested in investigating further. I contact Caroline to get her take on it all. She agrees with me. Okay, there are two things here, she explains. Her partner is also a serving police officer and has lots of useful information. Firstly, it's my understanding that during COVID, prisoners have had phones fitted in their cells because they can't mingle in common areas. But he must register the phone numbers he wishes to call with the prison authorities and all calls will be recorded. So the police need to listen to these calls and get them translated. This is a revelation and could explain how Mr. Y was available on the phone at all the right times for what Miss X was doing. Absolutely, I agree. The trouble is the police don't seem to be the slightest bit inclined to do so and I haven't found anyone who can understand what she's saying so I don't know what language it is. The police must know what he speaks if he has to have an interpreter, answers Caroline. Let's just hope he isn't calling from a mobile he's bought from someone on the inside. She pauses before carrying on. The other thing is that, at some point, he will be shown B's video-recorded interview. All information should be redacted so that there's nothing that could identify B's address. But perhaps this hasn't happened. For the umpteenth time since this terrible thing landed like a bombshell into our mundane lives, my mind reels and my jaw drops open. He'll see her interview, I gasp. What, actually see it? In full vision? I'm not only gobsmacked, I'm horrified that this man will be able to watch B describing what he did to her in all its explicit detail, that he'd be able to feast his eyes on his victim as she describes unspeakable horror. I can't imagine, don't want to imagine how he'll perv over that, how enjoyable he'll find it. It's disgusting, disgraceful. We were never told this when she went to the police station to do the interview. When the call ends, I want to crawl into bed and stay there for the rest of all time. How does a man who's had sex with a child on the street only moments after meeting her get to watch that child describe in intimate detail his sexual assault on her? How can that be right? This is justice? Fairness? Something changes in me after this. I've never been prepared to sit back and let the police get on with it, assuming that all will be well. It's not in my nature. I will put my head above the parapet when I need to. And now I need to. Plus, in my first job as a TV researcher, we had a mantra. Your mother says she loves you? Check it out. Check everything. Research everything. I might not be able to do anything about the right for a defendant to see his victim's VRI. Not right now, anyway. But I can make sure that Miss X's visit is properly looked into. And I will. Caroline finds the names of the DCI and the DI and their email addresses. Write everything down, all your concerns, she advises, and send it to them. I'm also going to call the DCI to let him know he'll hear from you. I spend three days composing a seven-page email to the DCI. In the end, it boils down to 13 questions that still need answers. I insist that I will keep asking those 13 questions until I receive satisfactory answers. As I write, concentrating on getting it right, covering everything, I listen to the news. 
It is dominated by the sentencing of Wayne Cousins for the abduction, rape and murder of Sarah Everard. The condemnation of his abhorrent crime is universal, as it should be. And yet here we are, struggling to get crimes associated with a suspected rapist properly investigated. It beggars belief. Phil also sends an email to D.S. Gallagher. He gets this reply. I do understand your frustrations and sympathise with you and your family. I have taken the decision, open brackets, and discuss this with my line manager, close brackets, not to proceed at this stage with the witness intimidation matter, because the points to prove evidentially are not made out in that no threat was made and stroke or no persuasion was made for Beatrice to, inverted commas, drop her case close inverted commas, or alter her statement, etc. I appreciate that may, open brackets, or may not, close brackets, have been the reason or motive for the attempted contact, but nonetheless the offence is not complete. Witness intimidation is when an attempt is made to threaten or persuade a witness not to give evidence to the police or courts, or to give evidence in a way that is favourable to the defendant. I'm practically screaming out loud at this point. It was an attempt, I'm sure it was, with only Miss X's mendacious word to say it wasn't. I therefore have no power to arrest her at this stage, as the matter only got as far as inquiring to someone's identity. I have instead warned the person as to their behaviour and actions. I have also informed the defence solicitors of the incident and warning them of future conduct, etc. I advise that should further contact be made then to dial 999, as the offence may then be complete, or other offences such as harassment could come into play. On the day Phil receives this email, the news tells us yet again of an epidemic of male violence against women as if we didn't know. We are informed that police often neglect to press charges to save themselves time. Hey-ho, that sounds familiar. I feel like I'm living in two parallel universes, the one the media reports and the one the police and criminal justice system operate in. Do these institutions listen to the news? Clearly not. Boris Johnson says that misogyny is badly awful, but he won't make it a hate crime because it would be too difficult to enforce. The world is full of difficult-to-enforce crimes, but we still have them because we know it matters. It's hard to enforce fly-tipping legislation, but we don't just abandon it and announce a free-for-all. The truth is that Johnson won't make misogyny a hate crime because he doesn't want to. He doesn't think it's sufficiently important. Women simply don't matter enough. Meanwhile, B is struggling. She has constant headaches that are disabling, crippling. It's a continual battle to get her up and into school every day, a battle I often lose. Along with everything else, this man's actions are robbing her of her hope for the future, the job and useful role in society that she has long set her heart on. She wants to be a paramedic, but she almost certainly won't get the grades to study this popular subject at university. I don't know what she'll do. It's over a week before the DCI replies. He says he thought it was being dealt with. He's spoken with Caroline Richards. He'll get back to us in due course. In the meantime, I get an email from D.S. Gallagher asking me to write a statement about the events of the night of the rape. And then an email from the D.I. My officers are the best there is. The D.C. dealing with your case, D.C. Wade, was hand-picked by me to be a part of this team. Twice in the last couple of weeks, I have spoken to her regarding this case on her day off. On both occasions, I woke her from her sleep, and on both occasions, she was on holiday, with a capital H. There is a saying in police circles that you don't have to set yourself on fire to keep others warm. That's true, but if you're not willing to do so, then I won't have you on my team. It is so patronising, it makes me want to smash my fist through a window. I stomp through the park with Frankie and the dog. The leaves are turning shades of red and gold and amber, but they're hardly falling yet, certainly nowhere near bare. 
So when you too write in their famous song, October, that the trees are laid bare, it's not true. Or is it global warming? I don't know how you're doing it, says Frankie. You're fighting so hard for Beatrice. Anger, I reply. I'm so, so angry. I channel my negative energy into emails. I email before work, during lunch break, after work. I email the mayor, the deputy mayor, the victims commissioner, Harriet Harman, end violence against women, reclaim these streets, and RMP, leader of the Labour Party and ex-DPP, Keir Starmer. As I type, the keys are red hot with my anger. The weather is getting colder, but I hardly need a coat as my rage keeps me warm. One day, in mid-October, I finally get an email response from the DCI. Lots of his answers are more fudge, more excuses, more evasions. But he does say this. In relation to the visit, I have discussed this with D.S. Gallagher, and I am not satisfied that we have established all the facts, whether any offences have been committed by the fiancé, the defendant, or anyone else, and whether there are any associated risks to be and your family. As a result of this, I have directed that a new investigation is conducted into possible witness intimidation. This investigation has already commenced, but is likely to take some time as we need to obtain information from various sources, e.g. the prison. I will keep you updated with any significant progress that this investigation makes. Shortly after this, I get a call from Keir Starmer's office, saying he wants to meet us and offering us an appointment at his constituency surgery. Finally, someone is listening. He's the only person outside the police of all those I contacted who ever gets back to me. Nothing from Harriet Harman or the mayor, nothing from the victims' commissioners. At the meeting, Sir Keir is beyond kind and helpful. Not just a consummate professional, but also an empathetic human being. Phil and I leave feeling truly heard for the first time in this whole hideous process. Now Keir is involved, we might start getting some answers. The buoyancy doesn't last. That evening, as I'm listening to the news on my way home, I hear of the brutal murder of the MP David Amos and his constituency surgery, and I come crashing down to earth. This is what people like Keir and all the MPs, no matter what party they represent, must face on a daily basis. It is too shocking for words. In October, we get a date for the trial. It will commence on 24th January. The days, weeks and months between now and then stretch ahead of us, a void that seems bottomless. All there is to fill the chasm is worry. Frankie and her partner Gareth are going to their house in Mallorca. She invites us to join them there over half-term. I'm fortunate enough to have a two-week holiday, but the girls only have one. I look at flights, but they are eye-wateringly expensive. Then I find out that Iris and B's school has an inset day on the Friday, which means we can go before most schools break up and avoid the highest charges. I seize the metal and book. Phil can't take the time off work, so it will be me, B, Iris and B's friend Olivia. It will be lovely to be somewhere different for a while, hopefully with some of the sunshine that was sorely missed in the UK over the summer. But relaxation seems unlikely. The police have finally sent me forms to fill in to access B's medical records, and I run the way they may be used over and over in my head, the DS's comments about rape fantasies ringing in my ears. I'm sure B has never had such a fantasy in her life, much less confessed it to anyone. But still... What it reminds me is that the defence can twist anything, turn anything into ammunition, make anything Beatrice has done into part of the picture, that she wanted it or was asking for it. We all know how these things work. Over years and years we've read the news reports, heard the interviews, watched the films and documentaries. 
we know that women are almost always the losers. Lurid scenarios of the defence laying into B haunt me. I can barely focus at work. I'm distracted. I snap at the children, my own rather than the ones I teach. Iris tells me she's lost her black school coat and I'm cross with her in a way I've never been before. I'll buy a new one out of my savings, she pleads. Yes, you will, I reply. You need to learn to look after your things. As I speak, I hate myself for my bad temper. B has a meltdown about a meal that I've measured out wrongly and I walk out of the kitchen and up to the bathroom where I lock the door, lean my forehead onto the cool, hard mirror and focus on my breathing, in and out, trying to calm myself. Because of her illness, B has not possessed a swimming costume since she was about 12. The quest to find her some kind of swimmer that she will actually feel able to put on takes many an evening in the run-up to our trip. By the time choices have been made, I have to pay through the nose for express delivery in order for the things to arrive on time. When the day finally arrives to travel to Mallorca, B is distraught, stressed out of her mind, shaking and trembling. She's never liked being away from home, and now she's more terrified than ever. She had wanted to go, really wanted to go, but now she wants to stay at home. Travelling is too big, too difficult, too stressful. For a while, she's inconsolable. I wonder why I ever thought this trip was a good idea, why I ever agreed to it. I only get beyond the tube by telling her that Olivia is already en route, that she'll be at Liverpool Street Station and we can't leave her hanging around on her own. B relents and we manage to make it, not just to the station, but to the airport and onto the plane. Mallorca, when we finally arrive, is picture perfect as always. The hire car turns out to be twice the price I thought. Thanks, holiday autos, but I don't even care. We're here, and perhaps for five days we can forget about what happened, and the court case to come, and the lack of progress or information about the investigation into the fiancé's visit, and the lifelong damage done to B. Perhaps, for five days, we can just be. I realise, as Beatrice in the passenger seat reads out Frankie's directions to me, how long it has been since there has been one carefree moment in our family, for any of us. Crimes like these take over everything, they become all-encompassing and all-enveloping, sucking in not just the victim but all those around her. I feel so sorry for anyone, any woman having to cope with this alone, without the support of close family or friends. I don't know how they do it. We leave the motorway and pass along roads lined by low-built houses with Mallorcan green shutters. Eventually the towns swindle to villages and then the villages to fields filled with olive trees or populated by shaggy brown sheep. Look, points Iris, a chicken. And there, by the roadside, casually observing the intermittent traffic, is a huge red rooster, shaking his wings and moving his head imperiously from side to side. An actual chicken, I say, not a sandbag. And we all laugh and then have to explain the joke to Olivia, because when she was little, for some inexplicable reason, Beatrice thought that the sandbags used to hold down temporary signs on the motorway were chickens. We drive on and I open the window in anticipation of the moment when we will smell the sea. There it is, cries Iris triumphantly as the first peak of blue appears. Soon we are in the little fishing village where Frankie's house is part of a terrace along the harbour front. We pass the vending machine that the girls were horrified to discover. A few years ago on our first visit, sells live maggots for fishermen, and then the standing metal motifs of fish and crabs, finally turning down the tree-lined avenue that leads to our destination. After dinner, I get into bed and feel, for the first time in weeks, that I might actually get a full night's sleep tonight. I take a Somonex regardless. No need to take unnecessary risks. The packet is emblazoned with messages that it should only be used temporarily, but I ignore them. 
I reckon no sleep is going to be worse for me in the long run than taking the pills. If I'm wrong, please nobody tell me, because I'd rather not know when I have so much else to worry about. Over the next few days, we sample a different beach each day, taking the greatest pleasure in introducing Olivia to our favourite spots. The lagoon reached by a clamber over sharp rocks past the King of Spain's house, the beach where you can hire pedalos, the beach with the pontoon, the beach where sometimes there are jellyfish and someone, we can't remember who, once got stung and had to be peed on because that's the cure, although of course that didn't really happen. It's just a story that everyone likes to tell, that has become part of our family mythology. I'm amazed by how beautiful the weather is and how pleasant the sea temperature once one has got over the first ten seconds of hell. The one missing element is the cicadas. Is October too late for them? I lie in the shade of an overhanging tree and listen, but their rhythmic whirring is completely absent. Closing my eyes, I let the warmth of the sun and the hum of the nearby beachgoers wash over me. At least we've had this, I think. Even if Mr. Y walks out of court a free man in January, at least we've had this and he hasn't. I imagine him, the man who raped my daughter, woken early every morning to a prison breakfast, then a prison lunch, a prison tea, meals the only thing to punctuate the ennui of the days. I've always been equivocal about jail, accepting the need for the worst of criminals to be deprived of their liberty, but wanting incarceration to be about rehabilitation as much as punishment. Now, I find that I don't care anymore. Stupid phrases such as, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime, flit to and fro across my mind. They say that the sex offenders are not well treated by the other prisoners, and far from feeling sympathy, I think that it serves them right. There is never, ever a good reason to have sex with a woman who doesn't want it, especially a woman who is actually a child, and who you have never met before, and who you have merely come across randomly on the street. If Mr. Y is being bullied in prison, then all I can think is that now he knows what it feels like. To be afraid. To be vulnerable. To be alone. On our penultimate night, Beatrice and Olivia decide to go to the nearby beach that lies within easy walking distance to have dinner and watch the sunset. They take themselves off to the supermarket first, and I know they're buying alcohol, but I also know I can't stop them. Apart from anything else, Beatrice has turned 18 by now. I'm not going to follow them to the beach and sit watching them all night. They deserve some independence. We've talked about the epidemic of drink spiking, and the more recent phenomenon of girls being injected in clubs that has just now hit the media. I've told them never to accept drinks from anyone else, and never to leave their own drink unattended. They know this. They're eighteen and seventeen. What was I doing at that age? Hitchhiking home from parties at two in the morning, that's what, then leaving home for a year, going to Israel, travelling all through Turkey, island hopping in Greece, all achieved with almost no money and no way to contact anyone should anything have gone wrong. I have to let it go. I have to let B grow up. Frankie is worried about them walking home alone. But they've built the new path now, I point out, so they don't have to walk along the road. They'll have the moon to guide them, and they can use the torches on their mobiles if necessary. I think it'll be okay. Secretly, I can't imagine them staying out very late. There are no young people around, nobody their own age. All the other holidaymakers are either octogenarians or Scandinavian and German families with little children on their half-term breaks. They'll get bored or cold soon enough and want to head home. Frankie opens a bottle of carver and we take our glasses up to the roof terrace, where fairy lights twinkle, and the leaves of the potted banana trees rustle in the gentle breeze. The boats maudal on the docks sway lazily in the almost still water, white masts caught in the headlamps of the occasional car passing along the harbour road. 
This is so peaceful, I say, sipping my kava. So absolutely perfect. Thank you so much for having us. Frankie smiles. Not at all. Anything I can do for Beatrice and for all of you, you just have to ask. Gareth is cooking tonight and delicious smells waft upwards. My stomach rumbles in anticipation of the meal. Iris is in our bedroom. I'd like to think reading, but I'm sure she's more likely to be watching something online. How are you feeling about it all, asks Frankie. I shrug. Stressed? Worried? Obsessed with how the defence will try to blacken B's name? Frankie tops up her glasses. I don't see how they can. Blacken her with what? She was a child. They didn't know each other. And you've said that he phoned her repeatedly afterwards. To what end? That must make the jury see him in a very poor light. The next-door neighbour's cat peers over the wall, dividing the two terraces. It eyes us carefully, sizing us up, pupils flashing when they catch the light. I just don't know. It depends who the jury are. Hopefully there'll be Daily Mail reading bigots who don't like asylum seekers. I can't believe I'm saying that, but this case has changed so much about what I think and feel. Although having said that, I don't think they're allowed to know he's an asylum seeker. Frankie considers this. I'm sure they'll guess, because he has an interpreter if for no other reason. Maybe. Gareth calls us down to the kitchen to eat and I scoop Iris up on the way. Over dinner we discuss the merits of the different beaches, how the area has changed since Frankie and Gareth first started coming here, anything but the case. We go to bed and, exhausted by the day of swimming, the food and two glasses of kava, I fall straight asleep. When I jerk abruptly awake, I have no idea what time it is, how long I've slept for. I pick up my phone. Half past midnight. No word from B. Are they back? Getting up, I pass softly across the bedroom floor, grip my teeth as the door squeaks on opening and go to the girls' room. A soft knock. No reply. I peep inside. Two empty beds. Where are they? I fetch my phone and take it downstairs where hopefully I won't disturb anyone. I send B a WhatsApp and then another one. Nothing. No response. I try a text message. Nothing. It occurs to me that I was so unutterably stupid that I didn't take Olivia's phone number. I wait 15 minutes, pacing between the front door and the table and back again. Perhaps I should just get in the car and drive to the beach. But if they're on the new footpath heading home, I won't see them as it's lined with shrubs and bushes. At 12.45, I pick up the phone again and call Boo's number. It rings out. Fuck, where are they? What can they be doing on an empty beach when the restaurant must have closed at least an hour or more ago? I call again. The phone is answered. Thank God, I think, before registering that it's Olivia talking. B's drink's been spiked, she says in a panicked whisper. The police are here, but she's going crazy, won't let them touch her because of what happened, you know. She's completely hysterical. I don't know what to do. What should I do?'